0: Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by a young man with a passion for music. The hugely talented Billy Sullivan is my special guest. We're going to take a journey from his love of music as a kid through to the formation of the Spitfires in 2012, building a cult fan base on their own terms through hundreds of highly energetic and powerful live performances and five brilliant studio albums We'll talk tracks recorded at Black Barn Studios' Paul Weller HQ, supporting Mr. Weller on tour as well. We'll talk about Billy's love of the music, the jam, the Star Council, Paul Weller solo, and Paul's influence on his songwriting. We'll also chat through his outstanding solo debut album, Paper Dreams, which arrived in March this year recorded in just three days in Liverpool and produced by one-time Paul Weller collaborator Simon Dine. Another really special episode. Let's get into it. Billy Sullivan, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: I've loved your music for quite a while with the Spitfires. We'll talk about the solo projects and Paper Dreams and all that and where you are right now. But it's lovely to have you on, man. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Obviously, we're going to talk about life as a singer. So, I mean, you're a young man, I say life, but this has been such a huge part of your life for quite a number of years. But your life as a singer, songwriter, musician, and, of course, we'll talk about this love of Weller. and uh, Because it's fair to say he's been an influence, right?
1: Yeah, he's definitely been an influence. Ever, Ever since I was a kid, he's definitely been an influence. I have to be careful, though, because, like, it's so much of a focus on me is that I'm a Paul Weller fan and it sort of takes over. No one bothers listening after a while. So uh, <laughs> it's like I'm, a, I'm like a closet Weller fan these days. Oh, really?
0: It's so strange that though, isn't it? Because I think as a singer, as a songwriter, musician, you, you get kind of badged with something that just then sticks and it's hard to shake off, right?
1: Yeah, like, you know... When my first album came out, I was 21 or whatever, and that's obviously what I wanted to portray or was as a person and we were this sort of band or whatever. But you realise pretty soon that once you get that stuck on you, it's very, very hard to shake off. But again, I don't let it affect what I'm into or what I look like or or what I'm doing. I'm a Bit older now, so I don't have to preach about it. You know, what I mean,
0: yeah. But it's that thing I think. Um, and I had Purple Hearts on the other week, and we were talking about the fact that they're a band who happen to love mod, but they just get badged with it's a mod band. And I think there's that thing where if you listen to like Plays for Today and stuff, that's so far removed from where you were as a 21 year old. creating music, right?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. For me, it was like. Yeah, the last two Spitfire albums were sort of where it was happening and where it was progressing. And I think, yeah, it's a million miles away from what we're doing. But, but bearing in mind, it was only like six or seven years since the first one, so we progressed in a short space of time. But like we do as humans, you know what I mean? No one's the same. There's a massive gap between being like twenty twenty one and then being like twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight. There's a there's a massive gap. You got them loads and you'd experience things that you know change your life um and the music followed that but i think with the spitfires it was just that heavy you are this from day one you're going to be this sort of band we expect this sort of these sort of things for you we expect you to have these sort of fans and after a while people just stop listening regardless of what it's sounding like and where it's going because you've already got that label the evolution and i'm going to link it to the
0: jam because the evolution from those albums feels like that from in the city right through to the gifts in in the same way that paul was developing his sound discovering new influences new things and stuff you've definitely been that way yourself right You're, you're kind of somebody who who's always looking at the next thing
1: Definitely. And I think, I think it's the same for any band. If you, if you're together for that amount of time and, um, you know, you're growing up together or whatever, then you do, you do have to keep pushing it. I, I wouldn't see any point in just like wanting to do one thing and, and stay doing that. I wouldn't get anything from that. I, I, I did the buzz I get off of is knowing that I'm progressing and I'm getting better as a songwriter and I'm trying different things. And as long as I feel like I'm doing that, then I feel like I'm succeeding in what I'm doing. As soon as I start feeling like I'm doing that, and feel like I'm treading our ground or whatever, then I'd, I'd kick it. You know, kick it in the edge, To be honest, So it's just like, yeah, you know. or, or blow it up. I guess, yeah. You've yeah.
0: kind of done to a certain extent uh, with this yeah. as well. So says, I actually let's, let's throw it away and start again. And we'll talk about the solo career and where you are right now. So let's let's talk Weller. How did you discover Weller? Was it the Jam or was it the solo years? So
1: I was born in 1994. And my dad was, uh, and my mum to some extent with Paul Weller fans. And I would just remember his music in the house constantly. For some reason, at a really early age, I'd say about three or four, I started to take a real interest in it already. My mum swears these videos of me a plastic guitar. On my mum is changing man. And I used to apparently just stand and stare at the telly where my dad would play these old videotapes of you know, clips of Weller and Oasis that he'd, he'd recorded off the TV. And I'd stand there just mesmerised and copy everything from the actions to, you know, the way they were playing the guitar, the way they were walking, everything like that. So it started from a really young age. And then when I was about eight, I'd say, I sort of went to school and all the other kids were into football. And I tried that bit, but I was always shit at football. And um <laughs> I was talking sort of, uh when I was about eight, I just, I'd sort of, Again, something sparked something where I, 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 I sort of spoke to my dad about the Jam, and he passed me the the, the Direction Reaction Creation box set. That just became my whole world. That box set, I just become so engulfed in it all, and um, you know, started everything off for me. Really,
0: man. That's something I that's such. A, that was how young my eldest is nine. At such a young age. I mean, he loves a bit of Ed Sheeran, to be fair, but he's not digging into it in that same way that.
1: That no, takes I, over your life then, presumably. No, I obviously had this obsessive thing in, in my heads, you know, which, um, that just like, it just sort of clicked for me. It just made sense. It was like all the other kids were into other stuff and, and this box set I had just sort of summed up what I was into and spurred me on to different things and reading more in depth about it and, you know, other bands at that time as well. Um, and because my dad had, you know, all these albums or whatever, I was able to just, dip into it and just go, right, I've read something where someone mentions this record and I'd go and find it. Um, if not, I'd, you know, try and get hold of it or whatever. i have just become, yeah, immersed in the whole, the whole thing. And I straight away at the age of eight as well, I started learning to play guitar and I decided the minute I picked up a guitar that I just wanted to be in a band and nothing else mattered really. Which to my parents' delight, obviously being at school, or whatever, I'm suddenly going, no, I don't need to learn this. I'm going to be in a band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the education. I'm Yeah, off. yeah. Look, no, I don't need to learn geography, mate. You know what I mean? Someone's going to drive me around in a tour bus. So I don't need to know where I'm going. <laughs> How long did it take before you were
0: decent and could play a tune?
1: Oh, uh, it was very quickly, really. So what well, I started learning when I was eight, and it was like classical guitar and grades and all that, and I really weren't interested in that. And I think for Christmas, my mum and dad bought me a, a Jam called book, and I took it into my music teacher. I was like, I don't want to be doing all this, you know. You sit with the guitar in the middle of your legs, and I don't want to be doing all this. I want to learn this. And, and luckily, my guitar teacher was a Jam fan, um, so he was delighted really that a student had bought something that you know he'd want to do. So I think the first one was Strange I think he taught me on guitar. And the thing is with anything like that is that. I learned bar chords for the first time. And once I learned bar chords, I was like, oh, i know guitar now. I don't need to learn anything else and sacked in the lessons and sacked in. I'd never done any grades. I never learned to read music or do anything like that. I was like, oh, I can play bar chords and I could play a couple of jam songs. And, you know, I remember ever falling in love by the buzzcocks. I could do that. So I don't need to be taught anything else. I was like, I've got it from here, mate. i like, <laughs> <laughs> do you regret that? Do you wish it? Do you wish you carried on? No, 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 not at all. I mean, like, it's just, you get some people that are like musicians, and they, they they study their instrument and stuff like that. But mine was that I wanted to be in a band, and I wanted to play guitar so that I could then be in a band. And I wanted to know how to play guitar enough so I could write my own songs eventually. And that's all it was for me. And everything else I learned after, like when I was younger, I'm going to talk about standing mesmerized on the telly. Most of what I can play on guitar, I learned from watching on the telly more than anything especially because i can't read music and i don't really write music down either only lyrics so yeah it's just i don't i don't regret that at all sort of i'm not the most complex accomplished musician in the world but I could sort of give anyone a run for their money. I think
0: it's such a young age to be thinking that way, but it's also like a confidence thing as well. Of like, because you, you knew you wanted to be the front man, presumably.
1: Oh, uh, I don't know. But at first, like we put, <laughs> so we put together. Like there was like an end of year concert at primary school, and me and a couple of the other lads in my class who had also been learning instruments together like a little band to perform at the end i think at that point I, I had no intention of singing i just you know i just wanted to play guitar in front of people really but i started writing songs ridiculously young i mean the, the, nothing impressive don't get me wrong but when i was about 10 or 11 i started writing things down or trying to copy other people's songs and make my own or whatever but as soon as i started doing that i was like i ain't giving this to anyone else to sing no way in the world and for some reason I had the bottle to just be able to go and do it and just get up there and do it even from, yeah, 10 or 11. We used to do stuff like, they used to do like open mic nights at, uh, open mic afternoons at pubs around Watford's and Coxy and Rice and the surrounding areas or whatever. And there'd be these old blues musicians, like in their sixties, they'd have all the equipment, all the flash equipment, and they'd just do these 15 minute chans and anyone could write up. And we used to just go along because it was a Sunday afternoon, we were allowed in the pub. So we just used to write our name down and go up and just play through all the equipment and play a couple of songs or whatever. And for some reason, I just naturally had this thing where I think I didn't, it didn't phase me playing in front of people. I was just, you know, I was going to do and the more I, I, I had in my head that the more I'd done it, the better I'd get it, and which is what I've stuck to in my career, really. And was
0: that you, the
1: outside of music?
0: Were you kind of more an extrovert, or were you somebody who was kind of introspective?
1: Uh, I don't know. My music is, the, you know, the fact that I'm a musician, or I'm a songwriter or whatever, makes up most of my personality, I'd say. Uh, other than that, I'm quite a quite bloke who's, you know, in the clothes and going down the pub, really. And that's, that's the sort of stretch of it. Being a musician sort of is my, um, and a songwriter, especially is my outlet to be a bit more interesting. Cause as a normal bloke, if I, if I weren't a musician, I'd be really, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, people struggle to talk to me as it is. I'm not the most chatty person in the world. But if they didn't ask me about how music was going, <laughs> would be fucked. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> have to
0: get of some kind of hobby, Billy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, mate. It's so, like you know, except from yeah, except from what lager they're drinking or, or whatever. I don't, I don't honestly know. I'm not into football either. I used to be when I was younger, but um, and I like watching football, but I'm not, I'm not into football, so I can't really even talk about that except from music. I'll- quite hard work for most people
0: (laughs) you mentioned fashion the clothes comes through I mean that's obviously a huge big Weller thing but that's something that you love right
1: yeah well even so going back before like the Weller thing I was my other like sort of first love of music was the Beatles and I was obsessed with anything to do with the sixties like anything um so, you know, when I was younger, for Christmas and stuff, I used to ask for books, just any sort of picture books, whether it be the Beatles or the 60s thing. I was always obsessed with the way they looked, and I sort of made the connection with Weller and the the jam box that I was doing. And again, that become a massive focus for me. Again, I've always been, you know, I must have been a really strange kid because, like, my mum talks about it now. Like, she told me that I once had a tantrum because she put a shirt on me to go to a christening um, when I was really young, and I didn't like the cut of it. I thought the sleeves were too long, and I threw a tantrum over it because I didn't want to wear it. What kid does that? You know? Not, not, because I didn't want to go to the Christening, just because I oh, no, the sleeves are too long. I can't wear this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I look like
1: a right muppet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now you see, so you talk about picking up the guitar and writing words, and obviously you're getting better and better. But the formation was the Spitfires, the first proper band.
1: Yeah, I mean the lineup changed many times, but I had the name from when I was about ten or eleven. It's like I sort of decided, my head, right, I'm going to be in a band. It's going to be called the Spitfires, and I sort of went through various stages of trying to find people that were going to do it. And I didn't find the lineup everyone now knows us as a Spitfire, the three of us, me, Matt and Sam. We didn't meet until we were 17, 18. So, it was, you know, I had all those years of chopping and changing and trying to work out what I was doing and learning more about it. And then, yeah, I met Matt and Sam. Yeah, our first gig was my 80th birthday. So,
0: yeah, and it's fair to say, I mean, you grow literally. It grows from nothing to this really big following, and lots of critics are talking about it and stuff. And your first couple of singles. Let's talk about the first couple of singles because they were recorded at Weller HQ at Black Barn, weren't they?
1: They were, yeah. So there was there was like three singles that we brought out, which again were only it was only really small time. Then we were still learning all about it, and. You know, they, they come up, we made CDs ourselves of them and used to flog them at gigs and, um, apparently they're worth a lot of money now, but God knows why. I mean, we stand in the line at, um, our manager Stuart's mates, Reese. I had uh, like a, a sort of lock-up gaff in Rickmansworth where we used to do printing. We all stood in a line and followed them all together and put them in and passed around. And the first 500 we'd done at the first single all had the tracks the wrong way around. And then we'd done one single that wouldn't play on every CD player. <laughs> it's going well, yeah. Yeah, we are just like, yeah, just learning how to do it. But yeah, they they were done at... Uh, Black Barn. And I remember the first time we went in there, I was booked to go in there actually with just as I met Matt and Sam about a week after our first gig. The lineup I've had as a band, I decided to get rid of everyone very quickly and currently had the session booked to Black Barn with no band. And (laughs) Sam was my mate that I'd met. Who had never played bass before, but he was just into the same sort of thing. So I was like, just go and buy a bass. Like, and the next day he bought a bass. And so he'd only been playing bass for three weeks before we went and recorded it. Matt had never played in a band before either. He'd just sort of been used to playing drums on his own. So we done, yeah, we done one gig and then went into a world of studio and just sort of completely and utterly blagged it. (laughs) That's amazing. So how does that connection come about? Uh, God. So we're talking 10 years ago now. I'm trying to think. Um, I think it was with Mark Baxter at the time. I think Mark Baxter, um, if my memory serves right, Mark had sorted the session out for us. You know, I was just over the moon to go in there.
0: And Charles Reese, so Paul's engineer, producer, produces the tracks. This is a yeah. man who's been involved with Mr. Weller for over 20
1: years now. Yeah, I love Charles. He's such a nice fellow. And the fact is as well, you've got to remember, like, he was sort of forced in this session where he didn't really know anything about us. We were just kids who couldn't play. And he sort of had to sit there and sort of while Sam was still learning the bass part and things like that and try and make something good out of what he had. And he worked really well with us. There was a track called Spark the Start, which ended up being on the first Spitfires album, which I sort of had. And he sort of saw like some good elements in it, but he sort of turned it on his head, really, and um, you know gave it this sort of most like, sort of uh, punky reggae dub sort of feel to it, which I'd never thought of and really pursued and it was like when we got the recordings back we're like you know this first time we've heard the band sound actually half decent from a recording so we're really happy with it
0: that must have been a real buzz to suddenly yeah you're hearing your music but it sounds it sounds like a proper band even though you've been together for a few weeks
1: yeah i mean like up until then i was only used to like you'd pay the local rehearsal room to do a demo which you're doing three hours. <laughs> you just set up and then record you, and three hours, they spend 15 minutes mixing it, and you get it back and go, oh, fucking hell, that's awful. <laughs> um, and it was the first time we got to have that, bat, and we're like, oh, do, you know, that sounds really good. And it just shows that, if, you know, all we needed was someone who had a bit of experience and was able to sort of look at it and look at the song and sort of go, well, you know, that could work, actually, if you've done this to it. But bit of polishing. So it's massively ironing. And I just loved being in the studio uh, you know my first taste of it properly, but I loved just the workings of it and how we'd gone from where we started to what we were hearing at the end of the end of the session and yeah you know, that was a massive learning curve for me, so it started me wanting to or learning how to really push things in in the studio.
0: I mentioned to Charles that you were coming on. He said a couple of things. He said, say hi to Billy for me. He said, I remember the guys being so enthusiastic. He said, I think one of the tunes twisted into a fast dub bass line. That was the one that you mentioned. uh, But he said also how hardworking you were. And I guess that's the point with like, you knew this was an opportunity and you didn't want to waste it, right?
1: Yeah, I was just, I was so, even then I was so confident that this is what I wanted to do. And I, I mean, people still say it now. It's like a whole thing with the Spitfires is that we were far too serious. Everyone thinks we were far too serious or whatever. But I take what I do very seriously. This ain't just a, a hobby that I do. I'll take some writing incredibly seriously. And even then, probably more so because I was very highly strung <laughs> at that age. You know, I still am a little bit, but far more then. So I took everything very seriously. It was like, no, we are here to work. Like, we are here to work. And I believe that, you know, you get results out of working hard at things and trying different things. And so, yeah, even then, I can imagine that I would have been the one who was like, right, no lunch breaks, nothing, trying to keep Charles there as late as possible. And I'm still <laughs> like it now. I'm still murdered for it. I'm still trying, like, you know, the engineer hasn't been home for two days. And I'm still going, right, now. come on, right just have a beer, right? And, you know, relax for 10 minutes and we'll get back to it. Let's talk live performance.
0: So you start gigging more and more. You're getting tighter as a band. Your yeah. songwriting is developing as well. And actually, I should ask you, first of all, in terms of, as a, as a gig-going punter, Yeah. first gig was Weller, is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah, when I was, I think it was 10, I think it was 2004, uh, or I would have been nine. Well, I don't know. I can't remember what month it was. It was at Amersmith Apollo. I remember that it was. I think it was. It was in between Studio One Fifty and as is now. It's about that time, I think. Okay. But yeah, my mum and dad, even as you know, a young kid, I remember my mum and dad going to see well with their friends. Yeah, when I got to eight, I was I was allowed to go, but I was only allowed to go in the seating section upstairs. I wasn't allowed to go downstairs. <laughs> so you could see all this fun happening downstairs in the mosh pit and all that. Right? Yeah, and I remember I had, I had a Ben Sherman shirt. Ben Sherman had done a Beatles collaboration and I had a Ben Sherman shirt on that had all the heads from the Hard Day's Night photo strips. I remember I wore that. I was amazed that I'd seen like mods for the first time. Sort of people that were wearing clothes or sort of seen in books and on telly or whatever. As an eight, nine, 10 year old would like, would imagine that I would then wear, you know, when eventually you know, I could fucking fit into it. <laughs> and being blown away by that. I remember the first track being a weaver for some reason. So the line
0: up then would have been so you had Steve Credit, you had Damon Minchella, would have been bass, yeah. right? Yeah. Steve White Why? obviously on drums. Seamus Fagan on yeah, Keys.
1: It might yeah. have been, yeah. Can't really remember.
0: And you might have even had Jacko Peak back at that time. I'm trying to think because he was back in the band at that point, I think for a little bit. But, um, and then obviously back now. So let's, let's flip it then. So you now being on stage, you're now a gigging musician. It's a very different thing being in a band. I mean, so much of it's about the live performance versus making records. Do you have a preference from being in the studio to being on stage?
1: No, I just see them as different, two different things really. Live performance is like. For me, it's like, it's a, it's a necessary in my life to do live performance. I have to be playing. If I don't play for long periods of time, I become so irritable and hard to be around. Um, because it's my only outlet in, you know, for me anyway. It's like. My life as a whole is pretty much sort of hanging around until I like go on stage, which sounds quite depressing, but it's not. It's, um, it <laughs> <laughs> feels like that sometimes. It feels like that sometimes. Days like today when I'm playing tomorrow, it's just like I'm just, I'm literally just hanging about, waiting to go on stage. And then what do you like when it's done? When it's done, I don't know. There's all these cliches that you're on cloud nine and you're riding high or whatever. And it's, it's not like that. It's just like, I get so worked up before going on stage that I spend the first 10 minutes after I've come off pacing the room, the dressing room, up and down, up and down, up and down, trying to wear off. And then I can't sleep at all. We used to go on, when we were on tour or whatever, I'd be the only one who didn't sleep. We drove back from Glasgow one night years ago. We drove to the gig, which took 12 hours because of the traffic. Done the gig. We were in Glasgow for three hours and then drove home for the night. And I was the only one, and I, you know, I was awake the whole time, and I was the one who had to keep the driver awake as well. Obviously, sort <laughs> of just prodding him every now and then, <laughs> yeah. And the pistols really loud at three in the morning <laughs> trying to wake him up. But I don't know; it's, it's such a weird thing. People say they can sum it up, they're lying. Really, it's such a weird thing to to sort of do and be into. But it's an absolutely necessary in my life. I don't know. I'd go insane if I couldn't play live.
0: Let's talk about some of these gigs around the Weller connection as well, because supporting Weller came pretty early on, didn't it?
1: Yeah. I was working around Maribyrn and we saw Weller pull up and go into a, a Costa coffee, and I followed him in and sort of just like didn't really know what to say then. I would have only been, yeah, I would have been about 19, 20, I think. He sort of could see that I was awkwardly standing in the queue, sort of looking at him, thinking, like, you could probably see my my brain going, what do I say, what do I say? So he sort of said, hello, mate. I was like, I oh, um, And I said something about his jacket. I said, like, oh, I like your jacket. And he went, yeah, it's nice, is it? And, like, <laughs> and um... Anyway, I said, oh, I'm in a bank called Spitfires. We've used Bottom before. Just like, thank you for letting us use it. And he's like, oh, nice one, nice one. And then he sort of went and sat down and was having a coffee. And then he come back a couple of minutes later, come out to me and went, oh, um, we should do some gigs together, or a couple of gigs together in the future. I said, obviously, I'd love that. And that was it. And the, the, that's all we said. And then two months later, we got an email. We couldn't believe that one of the gigs was in Watford. Because especially at that time, no one played Watford got one venue Watford for coliseum and it never gets used and it was used for a small brief period of time about five ten years ago they used it for people like well i think no come once saw Noel there and various other people and now it's gone back to not having anyone on but it was just like we couldn't believe the luck like the fact it was our hometown as well that
0: must be such a buzz. I thought I was talking to the Stone Foundation about that similar thing whereby they were playing with Weller on the tour and, and it came back home. Because it's like that stamp of approval in a way, isn't it? And it's in front of your, presumably like your mates, your old schoolmates or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, we've arrived.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal. We'd never played venues that big or stages that big. Again, it was another learning process because, you know, they're completely different doing them sort of shows than they are to doing, you know, small club shows or whatever we were used to at that point. And still at that point, we were only having like, I don't know, 60, 70 people come to our gigs, And then we were put in front of like, I think Watford Coliseum, I was 2,000, 2, And it were not completely full, but it was pretty full because we were the local band. I remember Weller standing behind the amps while we were playing or whatever and watching us and sort of noticing. And then the next night he come up in soundcheck and said, uh, he goes, you lot got a good response, didn't you? I was like, yeah. He was like, did you have all your mum and dad's there? <laughs> Cheers, <laughs> yeah, mate. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a great experience. I mean, the, the, I've always regretted it in one way because we would, it was like, it was a year too early for the Spitfires, really, I think. My nerves got the better of me, so I didn't really enjoy it. And the band were, this is, we just finished recording our first album, I think, anyway, or we just finished mixing it or something. You know, we were still, it was still really early days and it was sort of like, yeah, so it would have been five months before Response was released, before we'd sold out any shows ourselves, before we'd sort of really got into, you know, what we're about to become. So that's my only regret. And, you know, the naive it you know, because, mm. you know, would have changed us <laughs> a bit. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> it's, the thing, it's the thing, though, isn't it? It's like you know, you're looking back is like, were you ready at that stage? And, and if your album's not even out, people, most people are not knowing the music either.
1: No, but it was a weird thing with the Spitfires. Like everyone, sort of, the name was out there, and again because you know, it's like what I spoke about earlier because of the imagery of the band early on and the way we look, we caught, we stuck out a bit and. You know, people are very curious about us. I think as well, because, you know, I might stand out of line here, but for the, up until that point, there were so many bands in a similar sort of vein who were so shit and so ordinary, and they loved the mod theme because it gave them an audience rather than used it to influence their music, if you get what I mean. It was just like it was becoming a, like a member of a club. Like we're in the club now, so can you come see us regardless if we're good or not? And I think the Spitfires were different because we actually had something about us and we had, you know, a few decent songs and we were really good live and and good musicians, which sort of made people spend time to listen to us at first and sort of get into it. I think, you know, we were quite different to the rest of the, the mod bands at that time.
0: Hmm. Clearly, Billy, I mean, you, you won't say this, but I will say it for you. You know, clearly there's talent there in terms of the songwriting, right? And by that point, you're 10 years in, aren't you? From an eight-year-old to, to then writing songs. We're now 20 years in, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the more you spend on something and you love it and you've got that passion, you're going to get better at it. And the Spitfires was, was, what, 10 years of your life,
1: wasn't it? Yeah, 10 years of my life. Yeah, doing it properly. It was like, it was. you know, it was 10 years of my life, but it was like, you know, I lived and breathed. Every second of it, right? It was, um you know, we weren't just a band in, in my head. We were like one of the important bands. We were going to be one of the important, we were going to be like the jam or the clash or the specials. And it was like this gang mentality and like a uniform. And we were very close knit group. The only plan was to to write these amazing, to write amazing songs and took over the world. That was the only, the only plan and nothing would get in the way of that for me. Um, and yeah, it was just you know it was a massive part of my life. You can't play it down.
0: It's such an interesting time for the music industry, though, because I think the, the time that you're hitting, everything's flipped upside down completely in terms of that record label system. We're into Spotify and streaming rather than releases, all that kind of stuff. There's no guidebook to take you through this and how to make this work, is there? And sometimes no. that that kind of old model of just gigging and releasing isn't, that's not really how it works anymore as much, is it?
1: No, I think, you know, I'm a strong believer in that no one knows what they're doing. No one like the the industry don't, they sort of make out they do, but something can come along very quickly and change everything again. But there's so much bullshit involved, there's so much politics, and you know, especially when you get into the label side and the business side of it. My thing was always that if my songs were strong enough, they would get through to people regardless. I always believed that if the, you know if the songs were good, then people would eventually hear them. So that's what I stuck to. You know, I stuck to trying to write. Great songs, but evidently the label side of it does take over at one point and, you know, can quite easily leave you in the wilderness (laughs) because you don't know what to do, you know what I mean? Well,
0: there there must be an element of you kind of going, God, it shouldn't be this hard, because it felt like you had to constantly battle against these different things and fight and fight and fight and prove yourself again and again and again.
1: I don't know any different, to be honest. It's like, you know, that's just the way it always has been. And, you know, I've always had to fight for... For what I believe in and that I believe the songs are good and how the band should be rep- represented. And, you know, I thought every, every step of the way, with, with anyone as well, even if it's, you know, manager, band members, you know, I fought for exactly what I think is right. And, you know, I still stand by every sort of decision that I ever made within the band, except from the imagery thing. But the imagery thing was a naive thing that nineteen twenty twenty one. Was who I was, so can't really say too much against it.
0: No, it's also, it's also, I mean, that was then. That was you. That was the authentic you at that moment in time. And yeah. yeah? yeah. um, the, and there was another weller support slot as well. Later, this is 2019, the summer Cornwall.
1: Yeah, that was really good. That was really good, actually. It was like, um, it was a big outdoor gig, but it was like two stages. The zombies were on the bill as well, which we were really impressed with. We'd just come out of the studio the day before of recording Life Worth Living. And we'd gone down to Cornwall and the band were buzzing. But then we we were disappointed because at that point, the band were doing really, like, years later, better songs, tighter unit or whatever. And we were on a different stage to the main one. So I don't think anyone watched us or or took much notice, to be honest. But it was good. It was good. And we had a right laugh afterwards. We just stayed and got really pissed. and (laughs) and Yeah. I remember we were backstage and um there was sort of counter. We could go and order a beer and food. And we went up and ordered beer and food and, and we worked out it was free. So everyone started ordering by the crate loads. Then someone ordered 10 pizzas, um, <laughs> which all got eaten and drunk. And then we just sort of ran right. I mean, backstage at, there as well, it was like this little courtyard and there was all the bands sort of there. And it's a bit like a circus. There's dogs running round, kids running round. Um, There's sort of music blaring out of dressing rooms. Lots of people running about everywhere. Seems to remember Weller hanging off... Like, a, I can't remember, like, little, almost like little chalets, the dressing rooms. And he was hanging off a wooden beam, pulling himself up and down. <laughs> Doing pull-ups. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember thinking, this is a bit surreal, like. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that was, really, yeah, that was a good gig. That was a, that was a good gig. There's a lot of love for the band. Let's talk about the final album. With, and we'll
0: talk about the solo stuff, because I really want to cover yeah. a lot of that, right? Because that final album came on the Friday, Play for mm-hmm. Today. And then the final gig on the Saturday. And then done. Was it Sunday, I'm
1: a solo artist? Was that what was in your head? Oh, I was a solo artist two months beforehand. I'd already recorded Paper Dreams in the February. Yeah, in early February, so the first week or whatever. And then we had the last album, the last gig at the end of that month. And then I had my first gig as a solo artist in the April. So it was already done and dusted, really, then. But that last album was so it was written and recorded in the first lockdown We just couldn't come to any sort of agreement with our label about anything at all. And the album got dragged out. It got mixed countless times to the point where the process slowed down so much that there was no momentum behind it at all I strongly believe that if the Spitfires had stayed together and we hadn't done that last gig we would have done a tour a play for today that still would have been half empty you know it wouldn't have been held in some high regard because the album was always set up to fail in my opinion because it was misunderstood
0: Andy McDonald was on the podcast the other yeah. week, Go Discs Independiente, and he was talking about the, the job of a label, that support that, obviously, Paul had come out of the thing with Polydor, where they re- they rejected the Style Council's last album, yeah. um, is into the Go Discs, and the fact that you lose a bit of the belief when that happens, and you can tell that in Paul's, obviously, first couple of solo albums, there's the self-doubt and stuff like that. Yeah, you, know, you need the support of a label, you need the support of a label boss to feel like they believe in the band and they're going to take it forward, and when you don't get that, that must affect you mentally, right?
1: 100%, 100%. Anything I'm doing, I'm so sure of, you know. I was so sure that, of that album and the, the progression it was making and the lyrics and the overall concept and the sound of it. I was so sure of it. And then to have, basically be told that, that we don't understand this at all, this is going to alienate your, you from your audience. No one's going to get it. We've played it to people. No one else likes it. It's like, well, I've done a minute. Like, what am I doing wrong here? Fair play though. I stood up and I went, no, I think this is really good. Actually, I'm going to stick to my guns on this, and I did. And I saw it through to the end as best as I could. You said it yourself earlier. You're constantly having to prove yourself in music anyway, and you feel like everything's going against you. And then the people in your own team then are going against you. We had band members leave. We had management leave. And it was like me on my own sorting absolutely everything. You know, at that time, I had help from Simon Dye. Who was advising me and, and helping me because again, he you know, it's a labor of love for him as well. And we've created something that we both thought was really good. And we both thought would have a massive opportunity to get the band out to, to more people. And in the end, it just, you know, it just got too much. I just, mm. uh, just go, look, you know, what am I fighting for here? Even if I fight it through to the end. Everyone around me is sort of pissed off now, so it, you know it doesn't matter. It's just going to be me on my own anyway.
0: Yeah. So let's move on to the next thing. Let's talk about Simon because obviously there's the Weller connection there as well. First of all, it would have been Illumination. They did um, "It's Written in the Stars," and then we had the uh, Twenty Two Dream. Has played a big role on "Wake Up the Nation," "Sonic Kicks" as well. So, how did you connect with Simon in the first place? I think that was Gary Crowley, who um, our oh, legend. <laughs> was, um, did you see something in the fact that you could work together, or bringing you together?
1: perhaps, I can't, can't, again, I can't quite remember the connection. All I remember is that there was a a sort of discussion about it and I said, I'd love to because I always loved 22 Dreams. And that was it really. I've never worked with a producer before or anything like that. And the way he worked was completely different to how I worked. And I'd sort of had to black it as I went along and pretend I knew, you know. In what way? What, do, what does he bring to the party in that way? Well, he's, he's a very, he's a very, very creative producer. Most producers will take what you've done and sort of mold it into something or whatever. But Simon is right at the heart of the, the creative process and the writing process. You know, he's not just my producer, he's, but he co-writer. We write songs together. It's just a very different experience working with someone like that. Especially because it was so precious, you know, beforehand. It was like, I remember once that Sam Long spoke about writing a song once and I just glared at him, like, just put that to bed straight away. Like <laughs> That's
0: like if Rick Buckler ever mentioned it in the jams. I like, know it's not happening, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was like, it was, it was just like, I just sort of looked in like bewildered. Like, why would you even bring that up? Like, which was, you know, a, a sh- Silly thing to do, with, but, you know, I was 17, 18 and thought, I am the songwriter. That will be my job. No one else is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then when someone comes along that you can collaborate with, like I did with Simon, you create different things and he takes the best elements of my writing and pushes them far beyond probably what I could achieve on my own got to be a good thing well let's talk paper dreams so this was the album the first
0: solo album of many i'm sure this is your name above the door right billy sullivan now we're not hiding now man (laughs) we're out there but a really quick album to make was it like three days
1: three days in a studio in liverpool just me simon and you and the drummer in the studio and we just cracked it out basically we'd had the songs about five months or something like that so we knew exactly what we're doing We and someone worked together on the last two Spitfires albums, so we knew exactly how to work, how to get the best out of each other. And we, you know, there's a no-nonsense thing, really. We just crack on. It's like there's there's no point dwelling over things. We We know how to work. So it was very quick. Since Life Worth Living, every album's got shorter and shorter to make. My next one will probably take an afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we're like, please, please, me you know? sound. <laughs> Bang! We're
0: we're straight in, and it's it's just over half an hour. It's a really tight, tight sound, and it's undoubtedly you. But again, it's an evolution. You're taking it forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. I wanted it to just be a no nonsense records. I mean, there's a lot of you know lyrically, so a lot of finding my own sort of voice again, finding a bit of confidence again. It was not like an unwritten thing that. You know, if the Spitfires broke up. I'd go solo. It's like, you know, what else am I going to do? But it was like, it's just having the confidence to, you know, because in my head it was like, well, I'm not going to go and just play like a couple of new songs like the Spitfire stuff. That's not going to happen. So I had to write songs that I thought were strong enough to, in their own right, to be able to just play, and that be the the thing that people come to gigs to watch, and that be the whole thing that people concentrated on. And I think it worked with that album. To be honest, I think it was like. The fur, like, running out of time for me was like the first time I'd had a bit of that back in for, for quite a while. I wanted it to feel like being punched in the face. And I think, um, I think it does, to be honest.
0: <laughs> it's the brave thing to do that, though, as a you know solo artist to kind of almost go. Well, no actually, this is blank sheet of paper. Now this is you know when when I'm out on the road, this is the new stuff. You know, obviously it's a Paul Weller podcast, so I'm going to say it, but it, there's a Weller model there, isn't there? Of the fact that you know he, he's done that so many times. He's gone. Do you know what this this period? I'm not playing the Style Council. I'm not playing the Jam. It's just the Weller solo stuff. And then eventually he embraces that back which I imagine you will do in you know 20 years' time when we're having this conversation. Eventually, you'll look back on that, I'm sure. But right now, it's all about the
1: now, yeah? Yeah, it's just having that confidence in what you do. You know, if you believe the songs are good enough, then you don't have to rely on the old stuff. And for me, if I wanted to play a set mostly of Spitfires tracks, I would have kept the Spitfires together. It's as simple as that. And, you know, I've got enough confidence in my new material to think that I don't need to rely on that. And, you know, if I do want to play one or two, it's because I want to play them. And I've tried to narrow that down to album tracks that maybe weren't played before, and the odd things. I'm sure the Spitfires could get back together tomorrow and announce a tour, you know, or a couple of gigs next year and they sell out really quickly. But so what, what then? You know what I mean? How is it going to progress from then? Then we're going to make another album and it's going to be different from what people liked the first time round. And then we're going to be back to playing half-empty venues. You know what I mean? It's like, in hindsight, these people will, you know, it's like the last Spitfires gig. It was like, you know, it was the biggest headline gig we'd ever done. Uh, which was great, but it was also bittersweet because it's like, you know, if it was like this every night, then the, maybe the band wouldn't be splitting up because we'd have the support of the fans and know that we could do it regardless of what was going on in the background. It does feel like you've
0: drawn a line under that, though, and, it, you know, you should feel confidence in the songs. I mean, not just that, but also the production's lovely. We get, you know, there's strings on this album. There's a vulnerability in you as well in your your writing, and you're constantly evolving as a songwriter as well. It feels like you've put more, more of you out there on this LP.
1: Hundred percent, yeah, and I think that comes from feeling a bit vulnerable and and having a bit of loss, a loss of confidence, Um, but also just being a bit older and writing in a different way. The last two Spitfires albums had all been character led, really, and um, this one was more about more personal and more about the situation I was in. I think people can hear that in the songs, and I think that's why people feel sort of felt connection to them straight away. They Mm could see you know, that I was singing about what was going on in my head, really.
0: And these songs take on a life of their own. When you start gigging and playing them live, Mm. um, you kind of find out what really works with an audience in that setting, what stands out and stuff. And you've always had this knack of writing these songs with these kind of, you know, these kind of sing-along anthems, if you like. Are there songs that for you really, you know, surprise you from that album where you go, actually, this works so well in in a live arena?
1: Um... All of them really. I've been lucky as well because the band I've got surrounding me at the moment are, are fantastic. We're able to, to play the whole album from start to finish, which I've never been able to do before. The Spitfires was always the odd track that was just too, um, stretching us too much or we weren't capable of doing for various reasons. But now I can sort of play anything I want off that album and for it to sound good. And I've tried everything, you know, I've tried playing every single song on that album. Some work, some don't, some, you know, I'm still in a position now, but people still don't, for some reason, people don't know what to expect of my gig. I still get that. I still, it's only now, over a year on, people are starting to realise what they, what they are to expect from my gig. You know, they still think they're going to get the Spitfire stuff, I think. And they still feel a bit uneasy and a bit like, I don't know still trying to get their head around the fact that it's just me on my own now, which I find strange. It's like, you know, it's what it says on the tin, man. It's not art.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It feels like you're back in control though, which I like, you know, it's like, you know, you're back in control of your music, your career, working really collaboratively with Simon, obviously. And the album came out in March. Presumably there's new stuff that you're working on all the time, the two of you, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were in the studio in July. There's the, majority of the next record knocking about at the moment um, being mixed or whatever which again is a progression taking it in a different direction which i'm happy with quite a drastic move as well which i'm really excited about to be honest
0: and as a songwriter that the confidence is back yeah is the vulnerability still there or are you is it that kind of i don't want to say softer side that sounds terrible oh. but you know but you know what i mean it's kind of that self-doubt's gone right or
1: has it? Uh, it's, it's still there a bit. I mean, I don't think, you know, until I get to the point I felt like I was at the end of the Spitfires, you know, or beyond that, then there's still going to be that sort of self-doubt and vulnerability to it. But, you know, as you said, the confidence has grown now. So it's like the new stuff is like I'm back with vengeance, really, and I've got my bite back, and, you know, I'm going to be really opinionated again, you know, but in an older, more articulate way which so I'm really happy about. I was at an event last
0: night with the launch of Neil Sheesby's book, Stone Foundation, who, you, you know, obviously you know those guys, lovely fellows. We were talking about the fact that there aren't really any bands, any artists around right now who are like, railing against the society that we live in. And you were thought, yeah. if, if people are not railing against what's going on right now, when would they ever, Christ? Yeah. Um, that angry young man hasn't gone away. you know How you look at the world and what's going on has come through in your lyrics before. Is that something that you're kind of looking at as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, the thing is life in this country at this moment can be quite bleak for most people, I think. I think the music industry don't want that represented. They don't want that sort of, that sort of music being played. They want it all to be happy and about what you can dream about. And, you know, all this music is escapism and all that, you know, drinking cocktails on the beach and all that bollocks. I feel like, cause I've got my confidence back and because I feel like I'm more articulate than I've ever been when it comes to lyrics. I feel like I, I can afford to be fucked off about a few things and, and write about them in the correct way and write about them in a way that are interesting and that people can relate to. So that's where I'm at at the moment. It's a really shit time. It feels like it. It feels like it's been masked by different things, but you know, ultimately it's a pretty bleak future ahead, I think, for a lot of people. I think that should be represented in music. All my, all my favourite bands and all my favourite musicians have always reflected the times that they they lived in in a clever and intelligent way you know my my thing's always been if you can write a political pop song that someone can dance to then you're you, you're there really certain lines of malice or you know we got the casbah or uh, ghost town happy hour anything like that I think that's that's what I've always aimed for and I think that's what i Hopefully that's what I'll achieve on the next record, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah.
0: Well, look, man, we look forward to hearing it when it comes. Did you, have you got an idea of release? I'm guessing 2024.
1: Yeah. At some point next year, hopefully. You know, what I mean, I'm, I'm sort of keeping it open at the moment.
0: Well, look, always brilliant live. The album's terrific as well. Like I say, I think it's a, you know, it's a terrific piece of work, but it also feels like it's the start of something and the start of something very special and what's to come. So, man, I, I really look forward to seeing what this journey is like for you and the music that comes in the future. Cause I think we're only, it feels like we're only just getting started, man.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: I have two questions for you before you okay. go. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the Style Council. We didn't talk about the Style Council, Christ. Was that a thing for you?
1: Yeah, 100%. I think anyone who's into Weller, you know, it's it's normally, yeah, it was about when I was fourteen, fifteen. 15. I had my heavy Style Council period, you know, walking down Watford I Street in a beret, getting shouted at out of Van Winders. <laughs> a anchor, I think it was. Uh, <laughs> Jumper and the espadrilles and rolled up jeans. I've done a lot of it, you know, to be fair. Um, and I loved it. I really did love it. It's, you know, it's a very, very stylish period for Weller. Again, a very articulate period, probably more articulate than Jam was, I think. Those political lyrics wrapped
0: up in a pop song that you just talked about. I mean, that absolute master at that point,
1: right? Yeah. Walls come tumbling down is a great, great, um, example of that sort of thing. You know, political pop you can dance to sums up. Probably, well, from anyone I know who lived uh, was around at that point, summed up the time. All, all I know is it sounds like what I see on documentaries or read on books and all that sort of thing. And
0: then more recently, where are you at with like things like On the Sunset, Fat Pop, True Meanings and that? Any highlights
1: there for you? There's really good songs on, on all records, really. For me, like, you know, out of the last, I'd say the like this period of, of, of Weller's career, sort of 22 Dreams is a massive highlight. Then it would be Saturn's Pattern. I thought was a great record as well. And then I think there's been great bits on all albums since then.
0: Okay, those final two questions I mentioned. So cool. you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam. It can be the Star council then. You're a yep. fan. That's good. Or it can be solo. What are you going to go with?
1: Oh, that's odd. That's really odd. <laughs> uh... Cool.
0: I love how my guests always overthink this. It's brilliant. It's What's
1: so your basis? It's so changed, hard, right? It changes on day to day. If I woke up with the hunt this morning, it'd be private L, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't know good. No, oh, I feel all right today, so I don't know. All right, uh, so at the moment, probably what I've been uh, I'd say I don't know. It's not one of my fa- it's not like my favourite of all time or anything, but for some reason like time passes is coming to my head. Oh, that's a terrific tune, yeah. Yeah. Or for, and again, Fifth Season has come to mind as well. But, you know, I don't know. Did your folks have particular favours? Yeah, I suppose they
0: have. Like when you were like five, six-year-old, they're going like, this is the one you need to hear, son, look.
1: Well, like, it was, you know, at that point it would have been like Standing Road, Every Soul, that sort of period. So they're the albums I vividly remember as a kid. Um. My parents said, like, when I had a favourite album when I was like three or four, I used to scribble over the front cover, to you know, which they absolutely <laughs> love, you can imagine. <laughs> I we, worked with, we worked with Tony Briggs in the Spitfires, and I showed him, there was uh, my mum and dad's copy of Mosley Shoals, and I, I scribbled all over the front cover all over his photo I was like hey, so this means I like it Tom?" <laughs> <laughs> um, your parents are like that would be worth a fortune
0: now those original yeah. copies without all that scribbling on or yeah. they might be worth more I don't know <laughs> that's how you look
1: at it but, up. <laughs> but I suppose um, I suppose that's where time passes probably comes from or Out of the Sinking, right? I'll go with Out of the Sinking. Oh, good, good save.
0: Perfect. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <Sorry about that. laughs> Love it. And then final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself and hear your stories, your connections with Weller, but really more than that, you know, the, your tales. The reason I created the podcast was to get an interview with Paul Weller that I never managed when I was a radio presenter. It was my one big regret from giving up my career as a radio presenter. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. If I get to interview Paul at some point, what should I ask him? What would you like to know?
1: Um, ask him if he could ask Gary Crowley to give me his suit from the Solid Bond video. <laughs> has Crowley still got it? We yeah, yeah, well, apparently somewhere. I've asked him for it a few times, but no, uh, no luck there. But uh, if Paul has a word, then maybe he'll finally give it over. <laughs> He's not going to wear it now, is he? You know what I mean? He's going to get the dust in his wardrobe. <laughs> I could start up Watford I Street in that. Look at the bollocks. Look the bollocks. <laughs> Look the bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> you get the people shouting
0: out of the window again. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> hey, man, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time, Billy. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you it.
1: very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you.
0: Well, my thanks once again to Billy Sullivan for joining me on the podcast. I have to say, I don't know that I've ever heard Billy open up in that way anywhere ever on interviews. So really, really pleased that we could get him on the podcast open, honest, hugely engaging, and what a talent as well. Do check out that album, Paper Dreams. You'll find all the details in the show notes for this podcast. And I also dig into the back catalogue of the Spitfires as well. Just go online, paulwellafanpodcast.com is my website. You can also head into my store, get our official merchandise. And if you fancy it, you can buy yourself a virtual coffee as well. Hello, Simon Clemens, who's done exactly that. Says, hi, Dan, love your interesting guests who know more than me. Keep on keeping on, Dan. Enjoy your brew, Simon. Hello to Roger Clark. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hi, Sean Wilson. Hello, Sean. Thank you so much. Hello to Phil Baker. Giorgio Moroso. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, just go online, paulwellafanpodcast.com. You can also get in touch on X, formerly known as Twitter. It's at WellerFanPod, or on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening.